Romans chapter 3 came up as we talk about justification. Uh, and the deep theological, uh, you probably see on the board there, the ordo salutis. Um, I encourage you to, uh, to come a little early on Sundays and join us for Sunday school. Um, Romans chapter 3. A little bit of context since I was gone last week. Uh, the Apostle Paul, it's his great treatise on the gospel. Um, and uh, so he starts by saying it's something he's not ashamed of, that it's, it's, it's the hope of everyone. And then he starts uh, going through all the different oppositions that people have to the gospel. Uh, the first was those people who would try everything to suppress the truth. They don't want to know the truth. Now, it's interesting for us in the United States. We think of things like censor censorship. Right. And and being free from censorship has enabled awful things to be done in our country. Right. And what if, what what's trying to be censored even now? Right. The, the, the truth of God's word. Right. The, the, the gospel message. So he talks about that. That's that first group of people. They suppress the truth. And for us sitting here, we, we look at that and think, well, yeah, of course. You know, if you have a life saving truth and you're not just not sharing it, but you're keeping other people from sharing it. Yeah, shame on you. Of course God's wrath will fall on you. Then there was that second group that kind of had their own law, and he, he called them to account. You who uh, have, have made your own law by saying you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that, and yet you do it. Um, and then there was that third group, those who, in a sense, have the law and knew it. They could probably recite it, probably memorize it, but they hadn't done the work as we've done, as we're trying to do in Matthew 5, of driving it deeper and saying it's not just enough not to lie, but to deceive. Um, and, and then two weeks ago, we, we looked at this fourth group, those who would rely on being Jewish. And we talked about all that entailed uh, to be Jewish. And I said we'd, we'd probably take this in three parts. So this is the second part of his response to the people who would say, uh, God's wrath will not fall on me because I have been circumcised. I have this mark, this sacramental thing done to me. Um, and this morning, then, we have their objections to it. So I titled the sermon Objections Overruled. Um, and uh, it is this, as, as I said earlier, it's as if Paul, the Pharisee, is arguing Paul, the Apostle. So in our, in our first eight verses of chapter 3 that we read this morning, it, it is as if Paul the Pharisee is saying, then what about this? And Paul the Apostle is answering. And so it's, it's this beautiful position that he is in because he himself is saying, this is what I used to rely on. Before a holy God, I would have relied on this. And, and so who more qualified to kind of answer these objections uh, than the one who himself had relied upon these things. Um, and so I want you to think about this. These might not be your objections, but everybody has objections to the gospel. And, and, and Christians, we, we, it, it really is our job to listen and to answer those objections as much as it's in our power. And that's what the apostle does here, um, but the objections that people come up with, they're, they're, they're all different kinds, all different sorts, uh, but, but primarily people object to the gospel of Jesus Christ because they're comfortable in their own self-righteousness. 
right? So for Paul, a Pharisee, to have Stephen or, or any of the earlier apostles come to him and say, unless you put your faith and trust in this Jesus, you will face the wrath of God, right? right? For him, super, super offensive. Here he is, a guy that from birth on has followed the Old Testament has every bit of his being and his culture and his food, uh, his language. It's all been, I am following what God says. I'm part of God's chosen people. We have a history with God. Look at what he did. Look at the nation he gave us. Look at the temple he gave us. Look at the laws he gave us. You are telling me that that's not enough? Do you know that the gospel says that to every human being alive? You are not enough. No matter how good you think you are, no matter how much you think you could do right, no matter how you compare yourself to other people, you are not enough. And so it's offensive. So if you share the gospel with someone and they're offended, good job. Right? It, it, the gospel is not. Jesus is just standing there waiting for you to come give him a big hug. He's just, that's all he's doing. He's like Barney the dinosaur, just, just standing there. Just, oh boy, he's just a tapping, tap, 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 tapping on your heart. Just give him a big old hug. Oh, don't worry about sin. All that stuff's taken care of. Just, just, he just, that, that, that's who he is. No, he is a consuming fire that lives in abject holiness that we can't see without the intervention of God. Is he love? Oh, more abundant than we could ever dare hope. But he is righteous. He is just, as Scotty taught in our class this morning, he is just, he is holy. He will not let wickedness go unpunished. But for you and me to tell a person, unless you abandon every bit of your self-righteousness and wholeheartedly entrust yourself to Christ, you will face the judgment of God. So, yeah, people object to it because they're pretty comfortable with how they view themselves. Even if there's things bad about themselves, we get used to blaming that on someone else. I'm only that way because I didn't have the privilege you have. I'm only that way because I was dealt this way. I'm only that way because of this. I'm not as bad as someone else. Um, the other thing is people don't really want to change. We don't, we don't really... We don't like change. Now, I am the late adopter in the Kuiper family. I mean, I'm, I'll probably get Snapchat in 2030. Right? I'm just this late adopter on everything. Right? And, and I, don't, I don't like change. I don't like it when they update apps. Like, I'm used to pressing this button here. Why do it? It's the same with the gospel. It is not just a change of your status. It is a change of everything. So after we get done with Romans, we're going to go and we're going we're gonna to study Genesis. Never preach through Genesis. So we'll preach through Genesis. But it is, uh, the gospel is saying, it, there's not just, it, it's who you are, it's why you exist. Um, the third reason people don't like change is it means your system was flawed. And for many of us, it means going back and looking at even the family system that I grew up with. What was the family system that I grew up with that got my paper put on the fridge? What was the family system that I grew up with that made me feel like I'm a good kid, I'm a worthwhile kid? Was it I, 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 I got good grades? And you're telling me good grades is not enough. 
uh, was I was captain of the football team. That's, that's not enough. I never got detention. Not enough. I was so much better than my older brother. Not enough. The family system feeds into us a, a sense of righteousness. So um, maybe it's just something simple here. Have you seen the, um, there's this, uh, there's this little video around of a little girl and she's sobbing and mom's like, what's the matter? And the little girl's like, daddy called me a Democrat. <laughs> like what, honey? Daddy called me a Democrat. Why did you die? I don't know. <laughs> right. So I'm looking at that like at this age, this little girl has already already put her arms around a system and dad said I was part of that bad system she has no idea at that age what it means it is to her just a label take it one step further and I've said this before when I was in Mississippi I remember someone coming and saying my brother is going to marry a girl that went to Ole Miss I'm like okay well, we're a Mississippi State family. And I'm like, you're kidding, right? He's like, no. And I'm sure they have it here. Do they have house divided things that you get here? Like, you know, so-and-so went here, so right? It, 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 what is that? That is a system. It, it slowly infiltrates, right? I, I think those rivalries are hilarious and they're funny, but, but uh, the gospel comes and says, none of those things matter. That's why the, the, when the gospel is fully grasped and understand, we lose a lot of those divisions, don't we? We lose the division of race. We lose the division of political parties. We lose the division of color. We lose the division of the importance of male-female distinctives and distinctions. Right? The church becomes this, this beautiful tapestry. Right? Because what, what matters is this gospel. What changes me is this beautiful identity that Christ now has given me, that I have become his. And so when Paul says in a, in a very sharp way that, that your circumcision is not going to save you, he just he pulls the pin out of a grenade and he throws it in the tabernacle and he threw it into his family and his relatives, just all of it, and just said, by the way, folks, your security is insecure. Now, he is going to just briefly answer these four objections that we have in these first eight verses, but I assure you he goes more in depth in chapters 9 to 11. So that's where we pick up this morning, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Please stand for the reading of God's word. What advantage, then, has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I'm speaking in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? 
But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, be careful what you count on. All right, so uh, I was in Virginia, lifelong friends. Uh, and so when we sit and we have a meal and we talk, you know, we talk like adults do. How's this? How's that? How's your church? All right, I say, how's your business? How are sales? Uh, how are your kids? All right, hey, Mark, how's Luke? Oh, Luke's killing it. Right, Luke's killing it. How's Jordan? Jordan's killing it. And then what do I do? I list everything that we keep score about. Right? Jordan's killing it. What? Well, he just got a he just got a big order. He's in sales. He just sold one hundred seventy five thousand dollars worth of fencing to one person. Look, here's a picture of his kid. Oh, he's got a nice house. He's he's cycling. He's he's going to do fifty miles on gravel on Saturday. Right? I just start giving all the things that my son Jordan would say dad's proud of me because of this because of this because of this Luke's killing it because of this and, and again none of those things are wrong okay, so the apostle here isn't saying circumcision was an evil thing following the Old Testament law was an evil thing he's not saying that he is saying in the, in the sense that you think thought that was enough to keep you in God's good graces that it stands in the way of grace and so in some sense they're saying okay okay Paul uh, here, here again Paul the Pharisee so what good then is circumcision why do we even have it why do we even go why what what why why even care about it and the apostle is going to point to um, that everything will drive us back to the grace and the gospel of God so think about this when we do Christian worship okay when I call you to worship and we gather here think of it as as a uh, think of it as a college football game okay supposed to get there on time get a good seat pay a little extra you know you pay a little extra for these front rows here pay a little extra right you, you get there you you have these common songs that you sing you wear common clothes you have a camaraderie one with another why because all these people gathered on this side wearing this color are cheering for this team right and they're pointing things out and sometimes there's a little uh back and forth between people about how much you know Right? You might know a little bit more than the other guy about the offensive coordinator and his family, and you might have seen them at, at Tony's Big Boy or whatever, right? Um, there, there's all that stuff that goes on, but then what, what happens in the game? We cheer, right? And now if you're in a high school game and the other side's chanting stuff, uh, I, I think they still do it. I think we did it at one of the Grove games. People start going, scoreboard, right? Scoreboard. You've never done that, have you? No? Scoreboard. Right? We start doing scoreboard. What are we saying? <laughs> Say what you want, folks. <laughs> That's what counts. You know what we do in worship? 
we as a group of people, we say, scoreboard. We don't point to our self-righteousness. We don't point to our political party winning. We don't point to our football team. We don't point to our academic degrees. We don't point to the size of our house. We don't point, we, we, we're pointing to the risen Christ. And that's what Paul is saying. Oh, if you point to circumcision, if you point to your acts of the law, if you point to your ethnicity, you are absolutely missing the scoreboard. So here are the objections. We're going to go through them pretty quickly. The first objection he makes is uh, what advantage then? Basically, he's saying, uh, why, why even keep these things? Why have circumcision? But he takes it one step further and goes, what advantage then do we have as Jews? What advantage do we have? I think about this even with my own kids. Did my kids have advantage? Well, certainly they did. Uh, but there are times when, it, when, it, when you go through a struggle, you wonder, why did we do all of this? Right? If you have kids, let me just tell you this. Bringing them to church every Sunday and putting them in Sunday school, it is worthwhile, but it does not guarantee that they won't struggle. It does not guarantee that they won't at some point in their life say, I, I, am, I am rejecting all that you have taught me, and I'm rejecting you and Dad um, because I have grabbed some other truth. And yet there is an advantage in every way. Uh, and so he says, well, yeah, what advantage? Oh, in, in, in every way. I buried a four-month-old. What advantage did little Olivia have? You know, we're Reformed Presbyterians. We baptize our infants. Little Olivia was baptized in the NICU. What advantage could we claim on little Olivia's behalf? Well, I'll answer you the same way the apostle answers. Much in every way. Every covenant promise made to children, every promise that God makes to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, he said it's for you. It is for your children. He also says, what do we have? We have the oracles of God. He says, Jews, do you know what you received? You received something so much better than an outward sign. You received the word of God. You grew up with the word of God. You grew up knowing stories and histories, the word of God. There is enough in the Old Testament at this point in history for them to say, oh, we, this, is, this Jesus is who was always talking about. It was who he was pointing to. Um, a young man in college sees a girl he thinks looks kind of cute. He devises a plan, doesn't he? All you men have devised plans, right? Uh, I remember a lady worked for me in the office product store that was really cute, and guys would come in and, and, and pick up their orders from her, right? <laughs> uh, I think Diane has my order. I'm like, oh, I can get it for you. Uh, is Diane here? Right? right? And, and make a point of, of, of their car, you know, uh, wh whatever it was, they devised a plan, right? So imagine devising a plan somehow, and this is what happens to communities, human beings that don't have the word of God. They, they have this sense that God exists. They have a sense of right and wrong, 
uh, that God might be the northern lights, it might be the sun, it might be the river. Uh, they have a sense that God exists, and they try and figure out a way to appease him. It's, it's like this young man. I like this girl. I'm going to bring her flowers. Right? So he brings her flowers, and she's deathly allergic and starts sneezing. Right? Strike one. Hmm. Tell you what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to give her some chocolate. Right? I mean, isn't that the joke? Right? Man asks the genie to make him irresistible to women, and he turns him into a giant chocolate bunny. I'm going to bring her chocolate. So he brings her chocolate. I'm diabetic. Oh, strike two. I'll make her a sugar-free cake. I have celiac. At that point, the guy says, okay, I, I'm done. Uh, the stars are aligned against me. What, what, what am I trying to illustrate here? The Jews have, have an account of God Almighty. What advantage do you have? Oh, much in every way. You have the oracles of God. You have a history of your people. You have a history of the prophets. You have the Ten Commandments. You have the sacramental system. You of all people know that there, will, there is actually a way that the holy God has ordained for you to have your sins forgiven. Much in every way. Their second objection. What about God's faithfulness then? And this is, a good, this is a good question, a good objection. Basically, they are saying, wait, hasn't God promised that we'll be his people? And we'll talk more about that again in, in uh, Romans 9 to 11. Um, what about God's faithfulness then? Um, in, in verse 3, if some are unfaithful, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Basically, the question there is, and it, and it requires further study, and we'll get there, it's what part of God's promises are conditional and what part of his promises are unconditional, right? Just, just as an example, take um, uh, Jonah, right? So Jonah gets told, go to Nineveh, and here's what you will say, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed, right? And he, he delivers his message. He doesn't really want Nineveh to be saved, right? And he goes and he sets up this little hut, and he sits there kind of as an observer saying, I can't wait to see the Assyrians get destroyed. And what happens? Lo and behold, what Jonah thought was an unconditional prophecy, yet 40 days you'll be destroyed, is a conditional prop prophecy. And in fact, there's a play in the words. Yet 40 days, it says Nineveh will be overturned. And it's beautiful the way it is, and, and, and the city is overturned. There's a, a glorious repentance and a turning away from their sins and, and turning towards the living God. The question here is, we have taken conditional promises and prophecies and we have made them unconditional. It's like, no, no, no. Uh, uh, look, by no means is his answer. Okay, so he says that twice. Verse 4 and verse 6, uh, that is an emphatic, idiomatic expression. Uh, God forbid, some of your uh, translations will say. It's like, no way are you crazy. Your unfaithfulness will not make God unfaithful. Um, I'll give you one more example. Second Chronicles 34, uh, verses 19 to 21. Uh, it's the reign of Josiah, the boy king, who was a good king, uh, a bright spot in an otherwise history of decline and decay 
And as, Joshua, as Josiah is a boy, um, they're cleaning up the temple. Ezekiel will give you a great picture of what that temple looked like. It was filled with horrible things, grotesque images, uh, pornographic statues and paintings brought into the beautiful temple of God. And Josiah has the priests cleaning the temple. In verse 19 of chapter 34, it says um, that they found the, the, the words of the law. In verse 19, it says, And when the king heard the words of the law, so they find the scrolls, they find the oracles of God, okay, they find it, and they bring it, and they read it to the king. Verse 19, When the king heard the words, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Achiah, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, Aziah, the king's servant, saying, Inquire of the Lord. And for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that have been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. The oracles of God, uh, Josiah didn't read it and say, I'm glad I'm Jewish hey, let's try to cut these pieces out and just get some really sweet-sounding promise verses. And we'll put little baby cherubs around it. And that's what we'll do, right? That's what. No, he says, if this is the word of God, his wrath belongs on us. Go inquire. Right? That's the advantage they had of having the word. Right? His wrath is being poured out. Go inquire of the Lord. How will we make these things right? And that's why... Uh, Paul quotes then from Psalm 51. Uh, moving along, the third objection, verses 5 and 6. If our unrighteousness, he says, served God's purposes, then why should we be punished for it? In some sense, he's saying our evil shows forth by contrast the amazing goodness of God. His righteousness shines even brighter when set against the darkness of sin. In some sense, they're saying God is being glorified. You, you can see, right? It's, it's, it's as if an evil person is saying, it, you can see goodness by looking at how evil I am. Uh, here, here is this black screen, and the light of God will shine much brighter on it than it will on a white screen. If, if then, uh, our evil somehow promotes these purposes of God, is what they're saying, how could we then be punished for it? I had an orthopedic doctor that I worked with who got excited, super excited about the hardest possible cases. He would call me, he's like, you got to get over here right away. You ought to see what walked in. And I'd be like, oh no, we're going to have to provide apparatuses and prosthesis for this terrible thing. But he literally would get so excited about it and he'd want to present it to the other doctors. What was he doing? He was saying, uh, I, I am glorifying myself by fixing what is wrong and what is broken. And that's their argument here. If then our evil shows forth the goodness of God, why are we being punished for it? And he responds again with that same emphatic, God forbid, God is sovereign. He cannot be blamed for sin. God is holy by no means. And then he just throws this out there. If this were so, then how could God even judge the world? Right? And all of humanity secretly cries out for that. We forget sometimes where we would stand in God's judgment, but even when I pray for Ukraine and Russia, I don't think there's anybody in here 
that says, oh, that's really good. You know, that war should continue. People should continue to suffer, right? We, we long for the righteous judge to come and make it right. And God says, if then I allowed evil, if then it was not paid for, if justification didn't exist, then how could I even judge the world? Fourth objection, similar to the third, verses 7 and 8, does God's grace then promote more sinning? If God keeps score of my righteous acts, and now you're saying those things haven't saved me, is he more glorified by saving me from my sin? There's a couple things I want to say. We have to remember that God hates sin. God hates it. He patiently endures it until all things will be made new, but he hates it. Therefore, it is not right or good for any Christian person. As I said when we were talking about confession uh, of lying, it is not right or good for a Christian in their situational ethic to say, I did this because if I didn't do this, this person was going to do something more awful. Um, he says we don't, we don't sin in any way that good might come out of it. And, and we evangelicals, we, we love a good salvation story, don't we? We just, we love it. I mean, I, I love a good salvation story. In my mind, when it's a person that, that we think there is no way they'll ever become a Christian, and then they get saved, and we're like, everybody has to know this, you know? This is wonderful. Um, some of you probably heard me talking about Rosaria Butterfield, right? Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, feminist, lesbian, uh, Syracuse University professor um, becomes a Christian, gets married, has children. Uh, and evangelicals clamor around her like, see, it can happen. See, it's, 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 you know, it's good. And it's true. It's wonderful. But we don't use that to say it's good that we can keep on sinning. My sin and the depth of my sin will somehow, when God washes it clean, bring him more glory. Let me just illustrate this in closing in in one way. And I've talked a lot about family and children. I love my kids. I love my kids. Um, Sometimes my kids would do things that are wrong and they didn't want me to know. Uh, When they were younger, they certainly didn't want me to know um, because we disciplined. We disciplined with the rod. As I said, we took the Board of Education to the seat of learning. And they didn't want me to know. They didn't want to face the consequences. And then when we got older, they got older, we had a, a deeper relationship. And it's what we hoped for. right? There was this, there was this love bond between us. And so confessing sin uh, might mean I was disappointed in them. And so, uh, even if it was sin not, not committed against me, um, I, you know, Dad's going to be disappointed if he finds this out. And I always like Dad just to be happy and think I'm the best son ever. Right? I, I think that's how we operate with God at times. Like, ah, he's so disappointed in me again and again and again. But what never, ever happened was my kids thinking, Dad has forgiven me. I want to I do something really awful to see just how much he loves me. 
they did some awful things. They said some awful things. We had some expensive things. Right? And, and I tried my best to be consistent. I, I, I'm, I'm going to still love you. Right? I, still love, I still love you as much as I did before I found this out. Yeah, I'm fallen, and I am not God, and I am not perfect, and I will respond in ways that I'll have to repent of probably later. But never, ever did we get to a point where the love between us was so strong that my kids would think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to prove it by doing something completely awful against him. And the apostle is saying that, that that's the way that a Christian should think of sin, not as, oh boy, I just gave God another, another way to be awesome. But no, my father hates it. And so when I bring it before him, it, it is in order to have it removed and it's staying removed from me, and he is glorified in that. But it is absolutely foolish and evil to think I should continue to sin in deeper ways just to prove his love. That's his logical answer. God hates sin. It's a parasite in his kingdom. It is a denier of his truth. It is a thief of his glory. And it is a ruiner of humanity. So ethically, he answers it. You must not sin. God hates it. And then logically, he, he answers it. God doesn't need us to demonstrate his power. Well, those are four objections to the gospel from a self-righteous heart. I want to close by asking you a couple things. Number one, we talked about scorekeeping. It is really good for you as an individual. And, and something you should do every few years or so, in a journal, in a post-it note in your Bible, for you to just honestly, before the living God, say, how do I keep score? What is most important to me? And then how, how does that scorekeeping affect the score I keep with other people? The score um, is affected by our story, by our attachments to anything significant, be it an institution or a people. Uh, I don't think there's anybody here that, you know, last week said, well, what value then does my baptism have? But in place of circumcision, you put in, in place of circumcision, you put in there, what value then has my X? This is what I keep score with. You know, and, and it'll change. Uh, and, and sometimes it's just a surprise to you. Um, one way we find out sometimes is when we get angry. I'm angry about this. Why am I angry? Well, because this, this affects my score. This affects my report card affects what people think of me, and what people think of me is what the score is, is what matters. Now ask yourself that. God has no grandchildren. Each person has a relationship with him on their own through Jesus Christ, and so your score will probably be different than someone else's, and it will change. But next week when we come to the worship, and we, and we maybe even before next week, repent of those things. Just, just write them out there, just between you and the Lord. You know, it, it's my body image my reputation. It's what I drive. It's how smart people think I am. It's how beautiful people think I am. It's what, 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 whatever it is. Write that score out there and then ask yourself that question. What value does it have?
What have I placed on that? And my loving God is going to gently, often, sometimes severely, He's going to take that away so that you rely on Him, that you rest on Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much that we get to celebrate this sacrament that we come really with empty hearts and empty stomachs, empty souls, and we feast once again on what Christ has won for us. And you, the ultimate judge, the ultimate scorekeeper, we lay down at your feet. Some of it may be evil, some of it may just be good things that have become ultimate things in our life. We, we lay that before you. And we thank you, Father, that you do not keep score as we keep score. We thank you that you do not keep score as our family keeps score. Those of us with father issues, mother issues, grandparent issues, we thank you that you are not they. But you kept score and it, we could not have won on our own. And so you gave us your son. And he wraps himself around us in this robe of righteousness and grace and presents us to you. May we hold on to that as we take the bread. The things that bring us guilt and shame, Father, may we leave those as we drink the cup and realize that we who have held on to various forms of righteousness, we who have kept the score, oh, you have given us freedom to erase it to drop the score with others, to drop the score even in our own psyche, Father, and to, in beautiful, true, heartfelt, deep worship, claim, I know my Redeemer lives, and I will see Him with my own eyes, and we will not be afraid. You will receive us in truth, in grace, in love, and in righteousness. Set apart these elements, Father, for your use. Holy Spirit, work deep in our hearts and minds the absolute reality of what the body and blood of Christ has done for us, will continue to do for us throughout eternity. We ask in Jesus' name.